This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And special offer to Skaboom listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash skaboom. That's better. H-E-L-P.com slash Skaboom. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom Podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. The goal of this podcast is to talk about ska with an emphasis on American ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and document a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. In this episode, I'm speaking with Noah Schachtman, the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone magazine, Prior to beginning his career in journalism, Noah was a staffer on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, and reported from Iraq, Afghanistan, Russia, and elsewhere around the globe. After joining Wired as a contributing editor in 2006, Noah co-founded the Danger Room blog, which won the 2007 Online Journalism Award for Best Beat Reporting and the 2012 National Magazine Award for reporting in digital media. During his tenure at the Daily Beast, Noah helped turn the site into a journalistic scoop factory, according to the Pointer Institute. What's of particular interest to me about Noah is his connection to the New York City ska scene and his time as a bassist with Stubborn All-Stars and the King Django Band and his special connection to the Slackers. In fact, one of the first ska-specific things Noah did once he was in charge at Rolling Stone was to book the Slackers to perform live at Rolling Stone Studios last December. Given his love of ska and reggae, I fully expect we will see more ska and reggae-specific content at Rolling Stone. Noah Shackman, welcome to the Ska Boom Podcast. Hey. Um, I understand we were both born in the city of brotherly love. So can you tell me a little bit about your connection to Philadelphia? 
Um, yeah, sure. My, uh, my mom's family, uh, is from Philadelphia and, uh, yeah, I was born there, but only spent a minute there, uh, when I was a kid. And then I was in New York by the time I was six months old. Uh, then when I was growing up, uh, my mom moved back to Philly. Uh, and so I would actually like every weekend, uh, get on the train at Penn station here in New York and, uh, and travel, go by myself down to Philadelphia and, uh, and spend the weekend with her and then, and then come back. Uh, it's part of why I was such a freaking loser in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, late elementary and, uh, early middle school and, and at the high school. Some was cause, uh, I was going down to Philly every weekend. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, as, as, you know, as someone who was born there, I spent the first five years of my life there. Um, luckily I didn't, I didn't get the the accent, but um, uh, I think there's something about Philadelphia, right? I mean, do you have do you have you know, dis- despite what probably was you know uh, stressful, having to get on a train by yourself and go go visit your mom on weekends? Do you have fond memories of, of the city or, or things that you did there? I mean, I love Philly. I, I love Philly. Are you kidding? Like, no, it's a it's a great town, and and I've still got. Um, tons of family there. And, and um, I also, this is like totally tangential to this conversation, but uh, I did a very brief stint in politics. And a lot of that was in South Philly and, and uh, really linked up with some notorious characters uh, back then, (laughs) which were endemic to Philly back then. Um, So, yeah. So no, I mean, I've got, uh, I mean, I love Philadelphia. Uh, I don't get there as often as I should. Um, uh, and, and I, I speak to my Philly relatives all the time and, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, one benefit to being a kid there occasionally was I saw the greatest basketball team of all time, the 1983 76ers, uh, <laughs> uh, play in, uh, in, um, uh, in the NBA finals. So no, I mean, I love that place. And and the connection part of the connection uh, you have to Philadelphia is is your grandfather Lee Goober, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so both my uh, both uh, my mom's family on both sides were there. Uh, Lee uh, he, uh, was in the music business, and uh, and when he wasn't uh, uh, running Guns to Israel, uh, he was uh, running a jazz club in Philadelphia. And, um, the cop on the local beat there was a guy he called Valentino because he would comb his hair, uh, in between beating the shit out of people. Uh, that guy went on to become this, uh, notorious cop named Frank Rizzo, oh. who was like the notoriously racist, uh, Philadelphia police chief. Anyway, um, uh, Lee had a, had a, had a bunch of venues, um, uh, around the Northeast, um, uh, and, and settled eventually on, on one just outside of Philly and, and one just outside of New York city. Um, so while he came up in Philly, like my mom's whole family did, he really, uh, like a lot of my mom's family, uh, then came to New York and became kind of quintessential New Yorkers. And, um, and that's how I knew him the best. Right. I mean, he was a Broadway show producer. He produced the very first Broadway show I ever saw, which was the King and I, with Ewell Brenner, which my parents made, made very clear to me was, I was very lucky. I think I was 12 years old. I was very lucky to be seeing Ewell Brenner. I had no idea who Ewell Brenner was. At yeah. The time. Damn right. You were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I remember as a kid going to meet Yule and going to meet, you know, all those people backstage and, and, you know, Lee was an incredible. He was, you know, at the time, I think he was dating, uh, Lynn Revson, who was the, you know, basically running Revlon and, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, just had a string of glamorous, uh, girlfriends and wives and, and, uh, and was running hot Broadway shows. And then, um, and then he had this, um, you know, this, this theater in the round called a music fair, one outside of New York and one outside of uh, Philly. And, and sometimes they'd bring in, you know, super corny stuff and it'd be like Stephen Edie or, you know, something totally lame. And then sometimes it would be like incredible, you know, you'd have Stevie wonder or you'd have Diana Ross there. And, and so it was, it was one of a couple of ways that, um, you know, sort of on the, on the very outer edges of the music business when I was a kid. Right. I mean, so for anybody who's listening, um, Noah's grandfather founded a suburban entertainment chain that, and the names of them were the Westbury Music Fair on Long Island, which I was familiar with because I was from New Jersey, um, Valley Forge Music Fair outside of Philadelphia. And then there yeah. were two other locations, right? One in DC and one in Baltimore. Is that right? You know, I don't even know about those. I think those were not, um, I think those were more like tents, like they would only go up in the summer or something like right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and, and, and my, and my folks used to have all these stories about like meeting the doors there and stuff like that. That was what I was going to ask you. So, so first what, what I thought was fascinating was when they first launched Westbury music fair. And I think your, you, you know, your grandfather made, had this funny quip. He's like long Island, like where's long Island. Yeah. Um, but, um, that they were tents, they were not actual physical structures. Right. So they were sort of a theater in the round outside. So it was more like what a, a summertime sort of thing when he would book these. Um, yeah, I think spots. so. But, but by the time I was there, it was, you know, there, they weren't. And, and, um, you know, I remember like meeting like coked out Rodney Dangerfield when I was, <laughs> when I was a kid. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if, if you know, you you got to go to any of these shows, and if you did, were there any any shows or any performers that that stuck stuck out? You know, honestly, I like miss the really good ones. Uh, um, uh, my uncles tended to bogart those shows, and so instead, I I, I kind of got like what was considered family friendly or 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 like the also rands. Um, but I did see some like incredibly, um, filthy, uh, comedy, especially for a kid. I saw Red Fox and, and Rodney Dangerfield there, which, uh, that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, none, I, I, I must confess, I didn't, I didn't see any like great, great shows there. Yeah. But, but, but from what I understand, you know, he and his partners really brought, um, entertainment to the suburbs, like in a way that it had never really existed prior to that like i would think you probably had to go into the big city to see some of those performers and so that seems to me like it was a bit of a game changer yeah i guess i guess so uh as a as a, a true blood city guy i i just tend to think of my grandfather as, as more of a city guy too and and so you know what i remember a lot more about him was like you know he would have you know was more like after a broadway show would open and you know, you'd be at Sardi's on, you know, in the forties, uh, you know, waiting for the reviews to come in and it'd be, <laughs> it'd be super uncomfortable because, uh, the, uh, ABC, uh, television, uh, reviewer, uh, was dating my mom at the time. And so it'd be like, okay, what is my mom's boyfriend going to say about my grandfather's show? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Your grandfather was quoted as saying, we don't know what makes us a success, only what makes us a success this year, which I think yeah. is a great way of staying grounded as a businessman. I thought that was a very um, uh, self-actualized, like some real self-awareness there about, you know, one foot in front of the other. Um, he was also fond of saying that being a producer was like being a gambler. So I was curious if if any of his perspective on how he approached his work resonates with you at this point in your life? No, I mean, not exactly because he passed when I was like maybe 17. So I wouldn't say about that, but he did, he and and my other grandfathers did represent a a kind of man that I, that I really, um, that I, that I still to this day try to emulate, which is like fully in touch with, being a man and, and, and being fine with that. And also having it not be some like toxic, like kind of overly macho tough guy thing and being like totally being like totally masculine and and totally in the arts simultaneously, which at the, especially for their generation, that was like something that was not, those two things didn't necessarily go together. Um, and you know, they're just, and, and, and he and my father's father were just great loves, you know, they just loved music and, and loved art, you know, with such a deep abiding passion and they weren't like toxic and assholishness, uh, about it either, which was, it was just great. Yeah. I think they, it sounds like your, your grandfather were part of that generation of Jews who were able to, um, find a path between the arts and business you know, in many ways were very responsible for creating like American pop culture of like the fifties and sixties in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, my father's father was an appreciative appreciator of that. And then look, you know, um, you know, I had some other family members that, that were also involved, um, in that crew too. And then, you know, my, you know, still to this day, I mean, I talked to him today, you know, my oldest friend, uh, his dad, um, you know, when we were kids was, was managing Blondie and Roberta Flack. And, and, and so it was just a way, you know, in the music business was just part of, 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 of my childhood it just was there. Sure. And you mentioned something uh, a little bit earlier when we first started talking that your grandfather ran guns to Israel. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? That sounds fascinating. You know, I'm not trying to be like secret squirrel about it. I, I just, honestly, I don't know that much about it. I just know that out of that club in Philly, he did. Um, and, and, you know, he was a world war two veteran and, and, and a proud Jew and, and, uh, you know, wanted, and that was a time when, you know, the state of Israel was a completely pure cause. And, and so I know he, he believed really strongly in, in getting the state on its feet. Sure. Yeah, I know that was a, that was a, probably right around the founding of the of the state of Israel. So like yep. late forties, early fifties. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know there were a lot of American Jews who who played sort of behind the scenes uh, roles. Yep. In, in ensuring that that the country got on its feet. Um, your grandfather was married to Barbara Walters. Um, Correct. Do you have any memories of her from when you were growing up? Sure. Anything Anything about her? that uh, influenced you again in, in maybe your decision to become a journalist down the road? 
Well, first of all, so even though, you know, they were divorced by the time, you know, I was like of memory age, but um, they had a kid uh, who was like a year and a half older than me. And so we grew up together, Jackie and I did. And, and, you know, I'm looking at, I'm here at my desk in Brooklyn and I'm looking at a picture of the two of us together when I'm probably two and she's probably three and a half. It's <laughs> unbearably cute. Um, so, you know, um, you know, the crazy thing about Barbara Walters was like that person you saw on TV was like that person in real life and like super intense and super penetrating and, and, and like, you know, just would like, ask you these questions, these like star <laughs> questions. You're like, what the fuck? Um, yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, certainly like, you know, just like the strongest of strong women. And, and, um, you know, my stepmother was in the TV news, uh, business too. And, and, uh, both like such tough cookies, um, and, and great at what they uh, what they did. And, and so, you know, I don't know if there's like a direct, um, influence there, but, uh, certainly, uh, in retrospect, you know, you can, you can see how, uh, how, uh, somebody, uh, born out of all that, uh, got to be where I am now. Sure. And, and if I got this right, that your father worked at CBS at some point as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, my dad, uh, has done a million incredible things. He's so fucking hardworking. It's, it's wild. Um, but, um, he was at one point on the, uh, in the documentary unit at, at CBS. And, and that's where he met my stepmother. Um, but he's done a bunch of other stuff. He, he, uh, he worked on this, uh, he, uh, uh, he's written 40 plus books, uh, wow. for starters, which is crazy. Uh, he was, uh, for a while, a damn fine classical pianist, damn fine. And, um, and, and then, uh, and, you know, he, he was in and out of the, the movie business a little bit and, and, uh, and worked with, uh, uh, Werner Herzog on, uh, on this vampire movie called Nosferatu. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, and, uh, and he also, uh, you know, had a lot of Scott kids in his apartment in the, uh, in the eighties. <laughs> you know, that, that's a good segue actually, because I wanted to, to talk to you about that. You were raised in Manhattan, came of age in the eighties. What was that like? And, and how did growing up in New York city influence you? Because I, I think our generation, uh, you know, you and I are roughly the same age, um, you know, Gen Xers particularly kids who grew up in New York, I think had a, had a unique experience that probably is not one that kids will ever have again. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I talk about this, uh, probably the least parented generation of all time. Exactly. Like the degree to which it was like, uh, okay, kid, um, get your ass out of the house, get back here sometime. Uh, Yes, uh, this is like New York, like the murder capital of the world right now. Uh, but, you know, go amuse yourself and, and get back here at a decent hour. Um, I mean, it was crazy in retrospect. Um, I mean, just people living in New York at that time, the place was so dangerous. They kind of had to have a screw loose. Um, if, uh, 
if you're going to live here. But at the same time, I mean, the crucible of creativity uh, that was New York in the in the you know seventies, eighties, and nineties is just it it, it 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 won't be replicated again for it won't for decades. It won't. It know? definitely won't be replicated. Now, were you you know getting into bars and clubs when you were you know underage because that seemed to be sort of um you know part and parcel of, of, of being a New York city kid at that point. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> I, I mean, look, uh, the first time my like first shitty ska band had to uh, play at CBGB's, which was this legendary punk rock club, which birthed, you know, talking heads and the Ramones and Blondie, uh, among others. Um, uh, the first time we had to play there for an audition, we had to, um, like I think only one of us or two of us in the band were over 16. 16 was the age limit to get into the club. And so then we did the like one kid get a stamp and then lick your hand and <laughs> put the stamp on the others. And, you know, it was like a kid ska band. So there's like a million of us in it. And yeah, I mean, I just sneak in. So in other words, I had to sneak into to get into my CBGB's audition, which we passed. Yes. It was that was that like on a Monday or Tuesday night at one in the morning? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Where, um, where did you go to high school? What high school in the city did you go to? Yeah. So I went to this, um, uh, bushy fucked up high school called Horace Mann in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. Yes. Um, which, um, I think as I, you know, but I lived downtown and I was from downtown. I lived around the corner from CBGB's practically. And so as my friend circle kind of gravitated, uh, downtown, my, um, my, my, bougie school became the object of, of, uh, of some derision. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I, uh, I had my first book published last summer. Um, about, so I heard yeah, about, about really about the history of American ska, but I focused a lot on New York and speaking to folks like yourself and, you know, the, the similarity in the stories is, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, this generation of kids who, for a variety of reasons that you and I will talk to in a little bit, you know, really fell in love with ska and reggae and punk. And um, it was driven by high school kids. That's why I asked you where you went to high school, because there seemed to be a ground zero in in Manhattan in the 80s and early 90s around the high schools, being the place that um, germinated this sort of uniquely New York slash American version of ska, which I think you were part of. Um, and I, and I kind of want to talk to you about that. Um, you know, when it, when it was announced that you were the new editor in chief of Rolling Stone, the New York times referenced your sky and reggae past, which I think many of us you know, <laughs> who are, who are into this and, and have grown up with it. It just was the coolest fucking thing in the world. And they said of you, although he is a longtime journalist, Mr. Shackman knows his way around a chord progression. From college into his 30s, he played bass in a series of ska, reggae, and dub bands, including the third degree in Skinnerbox NYC. He was good at appreciating the groove and holding things together, said John Natchez, a saxophonist in the rock group The War on Drugs, who played alongside Mr. Shackman in a ska band called Stubborn All-Stars. So that's a lot to unpack, Noah. I want to I talk yeah. to a little bit about this. What drew you to ska and reggae music in the first place and why? Yeah, so I'd say there's some, like family reasons and some cultural reasons. Um, family reasons is first is, um, you know, I had uncles who were 10 years older than me and also kind of had friends or were themselves kicking around the music business. And so, and they were, they were, you know, 
essentially my older brothers. And, uh, and so, you know, as a, as a young kid, you know, I was exposed all the time to Steel Pulse and Black Uhuru and, and, and Peter Tosh and, and all the, you know, all the, the greatest of the great acts. Um, and, you know, it was the most incredible music I'd ever heard and in some ways still have. Um, I've got a, you know, in my office at Rolling Stone, I have a giant photo of Steel Pulse from, hmm. from those years. Um, so that was the, that was one reason. Um, the second reason was, um, the shows were fucking mad. Like <laughs> the shows were insane. Like, you know, you cannot listen to, a uh, like a toasters record or even have seen them in the last 30 years to fully grasp how completely insane like a toaster show was at, at the beginning. It, it, I mean, it was, it was pure insanity and, and, and this was very appealing and it was completely multiracial and New York in the eighties was actually like a more well integrated place in its own way than, than New York of the 2020s. And there was something incredibly appealing about people from all these different backgrounds uh, coming together, um, you know, under, under those banners. Um, And then the other part is like, look, just in the popular culture at that time, you know, uh, you know, that was reggae at the height of its powers. You know, those, those black Uhuru albums would come out one after the other, after the other. And like each one was like, you know, better and crazier than the next. You know, I remember probably, I'm going to call this 1985, you know, going to an early show at Radio City Music Hall, you know, which is a big venue, right? And seeing Black Uhuru uh, uh, and and Judy Moat uh, in a double bill there. And it was like, I, you know, my brain almost split into a million pieces. <laughs> and then, uh, you, you know, we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, burning spear and, and, and steel pulse at, at like the, the, the peak at this outdoor venue at one of the piers here in Manhattan. And it was, I, I mean, it was revelatory. And so, um, you know, and, and then the other thing was like, somehow as you referenced, like if you were a kid, you could kind of like, access this world in your own like janky way. Um, like somehow you could plug into it and it, like, it wasn't that hard to plug into. And, and so, and then we had bands that were like of our peers that were fucking incredible. Like you can put on a, a you know, I assume for this crowd, this crowd knows who the boilers were. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
But but in case they don't, it was it was Django's uh, band that Django then joined uh, that was like New York's best ska band, like hands down. Uh, Victor Axelrod, uh, who who you know basically later ran Antibalas and, and functionally the Dap Kings, uh, um, you know was kind of the heart of that, and and I mean. The band was insane. There's this band, The Second Step, that was insane. Like, so it was just at every level. You know, there's sort of like a familial level, a, a cultural level, uh, a sort of pop music level, a kind of underground music level that just came together to make this the hottest thing there was. And, you know, and it felt special at the time, but in retrospect, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe that actually happened to me. I, I know, and that's that's part of what drove me to sort of document it. Um as an oral history because I experienced it uh, not as much as you did because I was a Jersey kid, but when I could, I came in and was struck by a lot of the same things that you just mentioned. And later, you know, as I was researching and writing, as I mentioned, you know, asking you where you went to high school, I think the at the time, you know, New York had these high schools that admitted kids regardless of where they lived. So it wasn't geographic based. So you got this, um, like at Stuyvesant, which is this I guess what we would call now a magnet school, um, had kids from every borough in New York and were a lot more racially diverse than they are probably now. And um, at least my, my thinking on that is that it you, you got some Caribbean kids from the Bronx or Brooklyn who brought their love of, of reggae uh, and then dancehall reggae and hip hop and all that sort of, you know, in, you know there was a clash of uh, with black and white kids and Asian kids and Hispanic kids all together. That's at least what, like you, struck me when I would go to those shows at CBGBs. I never saw a more diverse crowd in my life. Yeah. Um, and I think that was important. Um, you know, and also the fact that Two-Tone probably had something to do with that, that it was, you know, in the zeitgeist. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Like 100. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, look, I remember being in the, you know, I don't know, I'm going to call it the sixth grade and like, you know, the mean girl uh, in class named her kid, named her cat madness, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like that was still very much like, it was still very much in the zeitgeist too. I, I'm sorry. I should have added that. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I, t- to me, it was, you know, like everybody would watch Saturday night live then. And then when the specials were on Saturday night live, that's all that anybody could talk about in school on Monday. Yeah. Did you see the specials on Saturday night live? Yeah. And then plus, I mean, the clash were still at the height of their powers too. So it's like, you know, the, all those things came together. Right. Um, did you have a lightning bolt moment though? Um, I mean, you mentioned that, that steel pulse and black Uhuru and all that, but did, was there a record or a song that just sort of like set you off on, on this path? Cause I, I think I've heard in another podcast you did that you described yourself as a reggae nerd, which I thought yeah. was kind of funny. I, um, I am definitely a reggae nerd, although probably compared to the listeners of this podcast, I am only like a, you know, I'm a, I'm an I'm an entry level reggae nerd probably compared to a lot of <laughs> no, people here. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. We'll see. But but you know, um, get get the Easy Star guys on here, and you will get reggae nerded to like <laughs> to the tenth level. Um, or get if you I don't know if you've had Django. Yeah, I had Django on last week actually. Yeah, yeah, so you know his yeah. knowledge is like is incredible, and I, I mean I remember when he ran the local 
uh, ska zine. He and his brother Doug ran the local ska zine, and you know they like wrote up some non-biting little um, you know blurb about my crappy high school band. Uh, uh, you know, in their zine. And I thought it was like the most important moment of my life. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, and the, like the other thing, I'll get back to your question in a second, but the excessive, like the ability to plug in was just incredible. Like I was mentioning the boilers before it was like, I remember like basically it felt like two minutes after I picked up the bass, I was all of a sudden like, like playing rehearsals with a couple of, you know, you know, this guy was the, I think there was the drummer of the toasters at the time. This guy was like the guitar player for the boilers at the time and like playing in a band with them. And they kicked me out for good reason, like two practices later and I had to go for my own thing. But it was like, you know, just like the, the ability to plug in was just, um, was just incredible. And, um, and I also made a ton of good friends, um, during that time too. And I think that, that also really cemented, you know, the camaraderie and the love for music was really intense as everybody listening to this knows. Anyway, back to your lightning bolt question. Right. You know, I don't remember a lightning bolt, but what I do remember is there are these, I knew about reggae before I knew about ska for sure. And like, you know, for some reason I have a, like a knowledge I have like, I remember like as a kid, like watching the news or something and watching about Bob Marley getting shot. Um, and you know, like knowing this, like, oh, fuck Bob Marley and, and you know, my, my uncles, as I mentioned, introduced me to reggae at a really early age and really imbued me, you know, with it. Um, I think, um, but with Scott, I remember there are these kids like a couple years older than me, um, who I looked up to, even though they were total dicks to me and, um, and they were musicians and, uh, and I was like watching them practice or something like that. And they were mentioning blah, 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 or we're playing some funk or whatever. But I was like, if you're really, if you really want to have fun, you gotta, you gotta know how to play ska. And I was like, what's that? Mm. And I think, and I don't know, just like led me down some crazy path. Yeah. It, I, I think it, there's something to be said for like, there was a, a real youth culture in New York city at that point in time that was just completely built around ska and reggae music. Like your peer groups, that's what people listen to. Yeah. The shows you went to, those were, you went with those people to those shows and you met more people. So I think yeah. I understand what, what you're saying, at least, you know, growing up in the city, that m must have been just around you everywhere. I mean, you would hear it. Mu that was just the music you heard everywhere you went. Yeah, exactly. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it was even built around Scott and reggae. I just think it was youth culture and, and it, it extended into other stuff too, uh, other genres. It's just like, you, you just cannot imagine the level of like lawlessness and <laughs> lack of supervision that was going on. It, it was like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, I, I interviewed Rocker T of the Scott Danks. Toby. Uh, Toby, right. Um, I did a whole chapter on Scott Danks in my book because- Oh, you uh, did? I, yeah, I felt like they needed their story out there. And when yeah. I spoke to him, we had a long conversation about this. Um, and he basically told me that, uh, I think it was, um, I might get the guy's name wrong, but Harmony Karine used to sort of spy on them and- um, 
follow them around when they did this crazy shit. They would just, as he described it, they just went stomping around Manhattan. Yeah. And, and that, that movie kids is in a lot of ways r- roughly or loosely based on what, you know, rocker T Toby and this, his group of friends did at that time in terms of like the lawlessness and like the no supervision and like out every night partying their asses off basically. And uh, we did talk about the pros of that. We also talked about the cons, uh, you know, of alcoholism and drug um, addiction and sexual assaults and everything else that came along with that. So that was sort of the dark side, I think, uh, of of all of that freedom. Yeah, I don't know about the kids connection, um, but um, he might have been just telling me a good story for my book. So I agree. (laughs) But Um, but but listen, but but I'll say this, like. Toby and those guys put together one fucking badass band um, from the start. Ricky, uh, his keyboard player, Ricky and I grew up around the corner from one another. And, um, and, and, you know, those, you know, those guys could really play. And it was, it was, it was awesome also to see them make the transition to basically being the, the house band for, for dancehall music in the nineties, um, was, was amazing. And, you know, talk about shows there, they, they had this spot in the village called the lion's den and you would go there and it was like the who's who of dance all reggae would be uh playing with them and playing with toby and 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 uh they fucking crushed it and and you know toby's i just gotta say is like you know in another era would be you know would have been like one of the bigger rock stars on the planet exactly exactly i mean you know what what i what i found was fascinating about him was that um, he could play all kinds of music, but but went all in on on reggae and dancehall reggae. But you know, as a, he's a decent guitar player, and he could have been a rock star if he if he had decided to go to go that direction. There yeah. was something very charismatic about him. So you, you've you've referenced your own band. I want I want to talk about this band because you haven't mentioned the name of the band. Um, oh, it's because it okay. So uh, my first uh, kid ska band was called The District. I think we played something like six shows. Uh, uh, yes, The and, District. You, your band and, name came up in my book. Okay. Really? Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. Yes, it so anyway, the, the only really noteworthy thing about The District is the first gig we ever played, there was a riot. I swear to fucking God. <laughs> and there was, um, it was, it was at like a DIY uh, space uh, on, on, uh, in the far uh, West Chelsea, um, actually right around the corner from where I used to work, uh, until a minute ago. And, uh, and, uh, it was for, uh, like an anti-racism fundraiser of some sort. And, uh, and like my prep school friends showed up and, uh, you know, like the, like 80 bazillion skinheads showed up and this is across the street from the projects. And those projects were tough at the time. The, uh, um, showed up and, you know, in, in packed into a space that must've been for like, 
a hundred people. And there was like, there had to be twice that number in there. And it was, it was crazy. And, and like the floors started bouncing and, and the speakers fell over and people started just started fucking punching each other. And, and it, poured out and the cops came out and, and I was like, God damn, this is the coolest thing I ever did. <laughs> How old were you uh, for, at that show? Oh my God. I don't know. 14 or 15. 14 or, or 15. Yeah. Wow. 15, let's call it. And, and so anyways, we did that. And then, um, and then I had another band that was, uh, had fewer riots, but uh, was better at music. Um, and so um, called the third degree, which uh, had, um, it was me and a guy named Josh Fox, who some people might know. He's the uh, director of uh, a really influential series of uh, documentaries uh, called Gasland. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. So he was a drummer and um, a guy named Ben Lapidus, who's, I think, certainly been nominated. I think won a couple of Latin Grammys, um, was a guitar player and, uh, and a uh, very well-known literary agent named Simon Lipscar was the uh, keyboard player. And then... Um, and a woman named De- Natalie Dangerfield was the, or, you know, girl at the time it was named Natalie Dangerfield was the singer. And her mom was like a, a kind of a big deal in country music circles. Uh, um, so we played and we did, you know, a bunch of gigs and, and um, you know, it's just, it's, it was one of those things where you could like, you know, as a kid band, you could play these like storied clubs and it was just like, it was just amazing. Um, and, um, you know, that band was okay. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, but it was also just a chance to like play alongside a lot of other great bands and great bills. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, kind of play with all those bands at, at the time. And, and, um, you know, a lot of those bands, you know, a lot of those double bills in as, as kid bands in the eighties became, you know, big shows with, you know, pretty serious label backing by the nineties. Um, and, and, you know, just under different names, basically. Exactly. Now I really want to, I'm a bass player myself. So I, I want to talk to you about the bass guitar. Um, yeah. cause you know, you've mentioned your bands, but, but clearly, you know, you, you were the bassist in these bands. Yep. Um, what originally drew you to the bass guitar? <laughs> Dude, it's the lamest reason. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really wanted to play sax, but I couldn't afford one. Um, and so one of those uncles I was mentioning had a bass. And so I decided to try to play bass and, um, uh, and it had four strings. So that was about as much. That's as why I, as I picked up handle. the bass because yeah. like you, I, I, I desperately wanted to be a musician, but there was, it was, what is the fastest way that I can do that? This has four, this has six. I'm going to go with the four. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, but then the other thing, right. Is like, you, on the flip side, you got to have an ego about it because, you know, of all the genres out there, you know, sort of the Jamaican genres are the ones that are, you know, probably that and funk are the ones that are the most bass dependent. Right. Right. Like you can be a pretty terrible bass player and get by in a, in a rock <laughs> band. Um, True. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so I was only a slightly terrible bass player. And so, uh, I was able to make through, uh, Scott and reggae. Um, and so, no, but I mean, I, I like, you know, part of your love of, of Jamaican music has to be, you know, that love of feeling the thumping of the bass in your chest. And, and, and if you, 
it, like if that isn't like a quasi religious moment for you, you're, you know, you need to go listen to a fucking EDM or something. That's a perfect description. I, I, I agree with you. It is a religious experience. I think the first time that you hear that, it either clicks with you or it doesn't click with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an on and off thing. And, and, and so for me though, I would just say that like the, the, the tracks that then really baked, like really blew my mind were as, you know, we sort of like got later into the eighties was kind of rediscovering the scientist dubs of those classic roots radix albums. Those were the ones that like, you know, if like, you know, the first time you hear that bass thumping is the, is the a near religious experience. You know, this is something like a, you know, a peak epiphany moment. Yeah, and you're right. If you have enough ego at that age, which I think we we probably both did, you listen to that and you go, "I think I can do that." Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize how easy it sounds, but how hard it is to actually accomplish without working really hard to to have that simplicity of of those sort of supple bass lines that, yeah. that, that make up those songs. Did did you take lessons or did you teach yourself? Did you sit down with records and just sort of try and learn how to play? Yeah. So uh, basically everybody who played a stringed instrument in Manhattan at that time all had the same teacher. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously. His name was Ed Russell and, uh, and um, he was like a jazz guy and he really didn't know shit about bass. In fact, when I like asked him to teach me reggae bass, he was sort of like, uh, I don't think there really is stuff, but I can tell you that like the guitarists play the upbeats. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I am positive you're wrong about this. Um, but, um, and so, you know, all of us that were in those bands took lessons from him a little bit. And then, and including like, I mean, this is crazy, but like, um, you know who Dr. Luke is? That, yeah. Isn't he like, I could get this wrong, but isn't he a producer or like a su- Swedish guy? Yes. Yeah. No, no, not, su- not, not Swedish. Swedish. Producer who's had some very infamous. Oh, yes. Band with Ke- is it Kesha that he's yeah, had some Kesha, right. issues yeah. with? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he was like one of those guys too. Um, just for example, um, uh, that was also taking lessons from this guy too at the same time, but everybody was those two, two older guys that I, that I mentioned earlier, they were taking lessons from him. That's why I started taking lessons from him. So no, I'd do that. And then, um, you know, just try to like, listen to what other people were doing and, you know, try to play, you know, try to like learn the, the entire first specials record. Right. Or like, you know, learn the toasters EP and, uh, you know, first EP and try and do that. Or like, uh, you know, uh, when New York beat came out, which was this like compilation record of, um, all the, um, 
like all the ska bands of the time, which I missed by like two years, which I'm still salty about <laughs> for like a year, maybe a year even. Um, but you know, try just tried to like learn all those tunes, uh, and, um, or, you know, on a, I, you know, yeah, just try to learn tunes. Um, and, um, you know, I think what I didn't quite know, it's funny. It's like, I knew reggae and I knew like, you know, kind of like whatever now is called like second wave ska, but it took a lo- lot longer for me to learn traditional ska that didn't mm. come till much later. Why? You know, I think part of it was those records were a little harder to find, you know, back then pre Spotify, you know, you'd have to really go digging through the crates. Right. And Two was that they were um, like the quality of the records was so low quality, you know, that it almost just sounded like, oh, you know, this stuff is like sounds so old and whack. Right. You know? and, and sometimes out of tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of times out of tune. But I, well, hold on though. The exception to that is now that I'm thinking about it was I had a cassette tape of, uh, I had a Scatolites cassette tape. Uh that was like when they got back together, they put to, yes. they put together a live record. That's right. Um, and I learned every fucking note of that. So, okay, I, maybe I'm lying. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe I knew a little something about Tradska. Um, are there? You know, you've mentioned a lot of bands that that um, you know were influential to you. But were there any actual bass players that influenced you? Yeah, man. I mean, Flabba Holt, who was the who was the bass player of the of the roots radics, you know, he's like, you know, he's right up there on Mount Rushmore and, um, and, and obviously, you know, family man is like, you know, right up there and, you know, um, and Robbie Shakespeare, right. Is like, you know, right there. I mean, I'm, I'm not giving exactly like, I know these are pretty obvious answers, but they're, no, they're no, right that, that's, that's exactly what I was looking for. I was just sort of yeah. curious about who you listen to, because I think if you become a bass player, you start, oh, but to hold, on, to hold, on, hold on, hold on, but then of course, like, uh, um, I mean, obviously like, you know, the other guy that's gotta be up there is, is Norwood Fisher <laughs> from, from Fishbone. I mean, that guy's, the, I mean, dude, that, that guy's the goat. He is. Although I also heard in another interview that you mentioned that you were a, a, a fan of Bad Brains. And so I wanted to ask you. How- was, I'm, I'm definitely, a fan of, definitely a fan of Bad Brains, but in terms of like bass playing, like. More, more energy, I think. But, but I, I think for me, learning the bass early on, I could pick out the notes for Bad Brains songs. <laughs> that might be why I, I, I sort of was gravitated to them initially because yeah. I could play a couple, I could play one side of one of their records and sort of start to, okay, this is, a, this is in C and sort of yeah. take it from there. Right, 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 right. Um, um, I mean, but look, but let's just get real. I mean, I talk about people that should be like, you know, Fishbone, should have been on the cover of Rolling Stone like multiple times by now. Right. Right. Like those first, whatever, three, four records are like no skips, like some of the greatest records of all time in any genre. Yeah. Agreed. And, and, and to me, you know, if somebody were to ask what is the the greatest American 
we're using the word ska here loosely because there were so much more than that. Um, but they, they would be the ones for me. Uh, and, and their story in terms of how they come to ska is also fascinating, you know, in the whole LA scene and being influenced by the untouchables yeah. um, and thinking that they've invented something new and then realizing, no, we haven't invented anything new. Um, just, oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, when they first started playing, uh, they said, I think when I talked to Norwood, he said, yeah, I said to everybody else, I think we started something. We're going to call it punk rock reggae. And Dirty Walt said to him, no, you idiot. That's called ska. And he, and he pulled out like the selectors first album. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, That's but, a- but you know, but- that was part of that part of that time where we just didn't have the internet. So you didn't know that shit, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Um, but I mean, truth and souls, you know, I mean, I think inarguably, like the greatest of the greatest. Yes, an American classic, an overlooked yeah. American classic. Um, do you still play the bass now? I know you've got a lot on your plate. You're a busy man. Yeah, you know, it's been really tough to to play um, while um, while doing all this other stuff. And and if you've interviewed uh, Django or, or or some of those other guys, they'll tell you I'm I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. And <laughs> um, and so I'm either like. 10,000% or I'm 10,000% out of it. And so I'm not playing right now, Sure, which is tough. Uh, but, um, what was tougher for me was trying to half step it. Um, yeah. that was, that was driving me a little insane. And, and so I, I tried to half step it for a while and like do some occasional gigs and stuff like that. And, and, uh, you know, I felt like I was being one of those like lame, like dad band rockers. And so I just, I couldn't do it. Sure. Well, and, and before I forget, Noah, what, what bass uh, was your, you know, what was your bass? What, what type of bass did you play or do you play? Yeah. It's a music man. Um, a uh, music man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I, I got super lucky and I got this, uh, this, uh, this bass when I was probably like 15 uh, that was a, um, it was, that was, uh, this is now super nerdy, but it was both an active and passive, uh, <laughs> yeah. base, which meant that oh, it, that's even too nerdy for, for, for a period. <laughs> um, but, um, and it had this really unique look to it. It had sort of three tuning pegs up and one tuning peg down. Right. And, um, and then, um, and, uh, and it sounded great and it looked great and it was, you know, great for the kind of stuff we're into. And, and so I was never one of these guys that bought a bunch of different bases. Cause I, I had like such a dope. Right. You didn't need anything drink. else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just got, I got, I, I mean, I just by accident, you know, it's like my grandma bought me something nice. Um, and now it's like sort of considered this like super rare class. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you, you was, don't, you don't see a lot of people playing those. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And, you know, I, and it was filled with all kinds of, you know, two-tone stickers and, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, we can talk about this in a little bit, I guess, but, you know, it's like, uh, I remember Ans from Skavuvi drew a bunch of really cool, uh, or what I thought was cool at the time, like, you know, all kinds of logo designs and stuff like that, uh, on, on the base and stuff like that. It was really fun. Um, I just want to go over some of the bands you performed and recorded with. So after, you know, you had your early high school band, you know, t- tell me if I've got this right. Did, did you, you play with stubborn all-stars? Yeah. So, well, here up, I, I had a, a college band called, uh, Kilgore Trout, which is a name I regret. Um, <laughs> uh, <good> name. <laughs> and, and, and we kind of like, um, 
you know, we, we, we had a nice thing going in DC and sold out the nine thirty club and stuff like that and did a little bit of touring, but that band wasn't really built for, for the road. Um, and then, uh, came back to New York and, um, was kind of, you know, just messing around with various bands that didn't really go too much of anywhere. Um, and then, uh, basically, uh, I, I was working briefly as a book editor. Uh, my, um, my, uh, uh, my company got bought and everybody at the company got fired, uh, which I thought was terrible, but turned out to be a huge boon to me and, and just started like really woodshedding and really, you know, trying to spend as much time on my instrument as possible. Uh, I reconnected with a couple of guys that I played those kid ska band, um, shows with, um, who were starting a record label called easy star records, um, which is, you know, turned into now, you know, one of, if not the biggest, you know, American reggae label. Um, and they were just starting their, to put together their house band. And so me and, and Michael Wasser and, um, and Victor Axelrod, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, played in the boilers and then, you know, was, has, you know, gone on to have this incredible career, you know, with, you know, Amy Winehouse and Bruno Morris and so many others. Um, um, you know, we sort of had, uh, sort of had a house band, um, uh, and recorded a big chunk of, um, easy stars first record that sort of got me really enmeshed in the reggae scene. Um, that was, sim- is that the pink Floyd one? No, it's before that. It's called easy star volume one. Um, and there's some really fun tracks on there. There's a sugar Minot one on that. That's, uh, called something like born in the ghetto. That's really good. There's another one um, by a guy named Ozzy Delamore, who's another one of these guys that should have been a giant rock star um, uh, called Time Has Come. That's the, both of those tracks are great. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, that's a, like an that's a no skips record too, right? Um, and you know, the meditations are on there, and 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 uh, I, I mean, it's like it's a it's 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 like a who's who of the roots. Um, and then simultaneously. Um, you know, Django and, and, um, and, um, and, and Vic and, and all those guys were really coming up on their own. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, walking by tower records and being like, Oh shit, there's my friend Jeff Baker, you know, in a big ass poster, like on fourth and Broadway and be like, hot damn, that's awesome. Uh, and that was with the first stuff and all stars record. And I don't know, I don't know what happened exactly, how it came about, but, uh, um, you know, um, somewhere along the lines, Jeff needed like a, you know, need somebody to fill in for a couple of Skinner box gigs. 
Um, and I remember, uh, and I'd sort of by that point been pretty deeply enmeshed in the reggae world. And, you know, uh, there's this sort of legendary, uh, rehearsal space, uh, uh, on third street in the East village, uh, called version city. And, uh, and, um, you know, Jeff and I were sort of joking around there cause we'd known each other, you know, for a long time down there. And the other guys from the band kind of filed in and they were like, who is this guy? Where does he come from? <laughs> and Jeff was just like reggae. <laughs> he comes from reggae. <laughs> and so, um, you know, um, learned the Skinner box set, um, you know, it was quick, you know, real quick for these like weekend gigs. Um, uh, let's see, this could be either a long entertaining diversion or like a long boring diversion. <laughs> I'll take my chances. <laughs> okay. So we were playing a gig one of the gigs was with the amazing Royal crowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember them? Or yes. Like, uh, yeah. And, um, it was sort of like their version of the hometown throwdown, uh, like the Boston's home, hometown throwdown. And it was at the big club in Providence. Uh, afterwards, uh, we decide, I don't know who decides, but somehow we all go, there's like another opening band or something like that. And we all go to um, some like pizza joint, like in the suburbs. I don't ask me why. And I guess one of the like openers, like was a manager there and he's like, Oh, I've got a ton of dope there. And like, I'll make you guys some pizzas or whatever. And so we're there at like three o'clock in the morning, like having a ruckus there. (laughs) And basically the cops break in, like kick in the door and like, cuff most of us and are basically like, Oh, you guys are clearly drug dealers. And they point it at, at Django or like, and I'm fingering you for the ringleader. <laughs> <laughs> um, then there was some like poor roadie kid who, you know, we had like uh, hijacked for the, um, for, for the weekend. And, you know, I think he was like a Columbia kid or something. And, uh, and the cop, the cop gave a speech where he was like, if there's any drugs in the van, you need to go out and get them now or, you know, you're going to be arrested. And so this poor kid is like, oh, I've got, you know, a couple of joints in there or whatever. <laughs> and um, reaches in. And as he's pulling out of the van, this fucking like small town cop has a has a gun pointed at this poor kid's head and was like, if you have a weapon, I will shoot. And obviously he didn't. He was like, you know, some like, you know, antiquities major or something. Um, uh, so anyway, um, and that was the beginning of a lot of fun and hijinks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and, and, and Jeff and I, um, would, um, uh, occasionally for better and occasionally for worse kind of, uh, encourage our own, uh, worst instincts. Um, and, um, so anyway, so I think I, I, I may have the sequence of this all wrong. And so someone like, uh, agent J will know better than me. Cause he's got like a better, like sequential and photographic memory of this stuff. But I think what sort of wound up happening, if I'm remembering it right, is like, I was sort of doing more Skinner box gigs as time went on. Um, 
because big Dan Jesselson was, who was playing bass in Skinnerbox was maybe had some other gigs. And so there's a lot of conflicts or whatever. So, um, uh, I think, and there might've even been like a couple, I, again, I might have the sequence of this wrong, but there might've even been like some like quick U S tours that then started coming together that I played on. Like I remember one, like a Skinner box slackers tour in there somewhere. Anyway, um, like I said, I might have the sequence wrong. And then, uh, on new, like in sort of like December of, Oh, maybe I have this date wrong, but I think it was 98. Uh, but it might've been 99. No, I think it's 98. Um, like all the, Django put together this tour that was going to be Skinnerbox, Stubborn All-Stars, and Rocker T, because Rocker T had just put out an album right. with Version City, which is a fucking awesome yes. album. And um, and all of a sudden, I may have the story a little bit wrong, but all of a sudden, like Vic Rice couldn't do this the Stubborn All-Stars part, and then Big Dan couldn't do the the Skinner box part. And so I came in, I think in like a week I had to learn like hours. I had to learn three sets worth of music. It was fucking brutal dude. (laughs) And, um, and I have to say, was that the Sky mob tour? Was that what you were playing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So, um, and you know, I don't know if I killed it, but I got through it, you know, like, and I, I held it, you know, and I held it down and, and, uh, uh, I held it down all except for a date in Amsterdam where Toby rocker T really got on my case because I had eaten, like way too much hash in the morning. <laughs> and I was thinking that I'd be fine by the gig. And I was deaf. I was completely not fine by the gig. Mm. Like I was completely useless by the gig. <laughs> and so rocker T was like barking at me after the show, not because I was stoned during the show. So stoned, I, I couldn't play well. He was barking at me that I hadn't, been stoned at every other show <laughs> so that I could prepare myself for being an Amsterdam. Uh, I love that story. That's great. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, and, and, you know, I mean, this is so crazy to say, cause you know, stubborn all-stars are, you know, at that time, you know, were regarded as, I think rightfully so as the you know, best American ska band. Best, um, or, or as, as I think, CMJ called them the best uh, um, reggae band of 1971. That was in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, it's really not true if you go back and listen to it. But, um, but I mean, I remember, you know, you know, Dickie Barrett or someone like that. You know, he was being interviewed on MTV, and it was like, well, who's the best guy band in America? And he was sort of like, you fucking moron. It's the Southern All Stars, right? Um, so, uh, so, um, so you know, it was funny. I was saying. I felt like I didn't really know Trad Scott when I was younger. Like that was my traditional Scott Academy. And it was like playing for the stubborn all-stars, which is like, 
I mean, it's kind of like learning how to play basketball, you know, and being on the, on the Lakers or something. And, um, um, uh, but you know, we had a, we had a nice little version of the stubborn all-stars there. And then, you know, it was kind of like a touring band and, and, um, and, you know, um, and then me and Vic Rice were trading a lot of gigs. And so it was kind of funny. It was like, while I was playing his stubborn all-stars tour, he was hooking up with the easy star guys and, and, and did this, uh, uh, uh Pink Floyd dub record right. called dub side of the moon, which is a big hit. Um, and then we'd all combine together and, and, and I had this dub band, um, in New York called no shadow kick, which had sort of like elements of, of all those bands, uh, in there. And we had a couple of guys from Antibalas, uh, the big Afrobeat band and, and, you know, from the Dap Kings and, and from the version city band and from the stubborn all stars and from the easy star band. And it was kind of more of a collective and, and those we'd sort of do these, um, I forget, it was every other week or something like that. We do these these parties that got became like a really big deal in the '90s down there, and every big you know reggae star would kind of start passing through them, uh, which was really fun, um, and got to play with a lot of really great guys there. You know, I remember like I I remember when like Dread started showing up uh, with like red, golden, green flags wow. like unprompted to the gigs. I was like, okay, I think we're doing, I think we are playing the reggae properly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I remember like when Shinehead unannounced was like, came up on stage and was like, can I bar? how about, can I play bass for a tune? And I was like, sure, Shinehead, you may certainly play bass for a tune if you'd like to <laughs> like <laughs> go off. Uh, um, and, and a lot of that was because of the easy star guys who, who, you know, rightfully had, had, had quickly established themselves as just like, you know, premier roots reggae, you know, stars. And, right. And, and, and you, did you also work with Lee Perry? Do I have that right? Yeah. So, uh, so then a little later on, um, after the stuff I'm talking about. Um, and, and I, I would just say like through that, we got to back up. We'd either, you know, open for or back up like every major star in reggae uh, during, during that late nineties period. Wow. I mean, like 100% of them. Um, um, and that was like fucking incredible. And, you know, it was like heroes of mine. Right. You got to play with and and, you know, or, and then, uh, I think in part because I was willing to work for cheap, <laughs> you know, some of those guys would then bring me in to record and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I mean, I just remember how completely surreal it was having like, you know, sugar, my not like call me up and bring me down to the studio to wow. record. I was just like, what? And then, you know, of course, like I showed up on purpose like two hours late, but that was still like him waking up and then him making me, Jamaican time. Of, yeah. 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 He making me breakfast of like, you know, um, salt fish and, and, uh, him talking about how he, he would get his 14 kids together, uh, uh, once a year, just so they knew each other's names. <laughs> uh, I fucking love that guy. Uh, and, um, and, you know, Horace Andy and, uh, you know, like that would, 
you know, play gigs with him, you know, just a million others. Uh, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty surreal. I gotta tell wow. you. Um, and then, um, and so then, um, uh, you know, I'm like a kind of guy that's always looking for the next. And so, uh, I definitely caught like drum and bass fever at some point, like probably like around two, I, whenever it was appropriate to catch drum and bass fever. Uh, and so I started in my apartment, uh, a, a, uh, a studio project called subatomic sound system, uh, with a friend of mine who was like a rock band friend of mine named John Epsch. Um, and so, uh, and it didn't start out necessarily as like a reggae thing or like a drum. It just started out as like more of an electronic project. Uh, but we started making some really cool music together and, um, and then that eventually led to getting linked up with Lee Perry, um, which I think I played a couple of those gigs and then, but then, uh, Amps really took, you know, the, the collaboration with Lee Perry to like much, much, much higher level and, right. you know, recorded a lot of great, you know, sort of re-recorded one of his big albums with him and, uh, and, and then, um, you know, really became Lee's American band, uh, uh, you know, for the last years of his life. And, and they had, you know, had a crazy, um, sync up, uh, together cause they're both madmen. <laughs> so you, so you got to actually, work directly with Lee Perry. Yeah. But I would say, I mean, I think that was true of, a, I, I, it's hard for me to even count that, uh, too much because I feel like there's like a lot of other people who did a lot more. He did definitely have a reputation for sort of finding bands and, and people and working with them. Um, there was a band, one of the earliest reggae bands from New York and the, and the U S called the terrorists who, he, oh, yeah. um, who he, did one like 12 inch record with, which is pretty actually good. Yeah, um, there you go. But he, he like, also, he would also hijack a bunch of bad bands right. too, just cause they were cheap. This was not that case though. This, so anyway, I would say like, look, the, like my link to Lee Perry is more like, if I'm being like the real link is that I started this project that, you know, I think, along the way really got sure, you know, like linked up with Perry in a, in a pretty deep way. Um, and, and so, you know, I think most of that stuff goes to Amsha, not to me. Um, but I'm really proud and I'm really proud that subatomic is, is still going really strong and they just had a, like a great, uh, uh, they did a re relic of, uh, police and helicopters with, um, with John Ayn and, and Yardcore, that was that was really good. Uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, it's, it's really strong. Why do you think there seem to be a lot of Jews in American ska and reggae? It's it's something I've pondered. I've I've spoken to Django about this. You know, he definitely has a perspective on it. But I'm sort of curious what you think the draw is for for some of us, particularly you know of, of a certain age. You know, um, of that. Well, time. I mean, first of all, it, it has. I mean, I think there's probably two parts to it. Number one is, you know, it goes back to, you know, the um, African-American and and Caribbean churches, you know, relying so heavily and seeing so much of their own story in, 
in the Old Testament. And then, you know, Rastafarianism, seeing so much, you know, building on that and seeing so much other own story in the Old Testament. And, you know, when you're fucking singing songs about Mount Zion and Moses, you're about to, <laughs> you're, you're bound to attract a couple of Jews along the way. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you're li- literally singing about our stories. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but like, you know, Passover's coming up in a couple of weeks and, 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 um, you know, we sing at, at my Seder, uh, the whalers version of go tell it on the mountain. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think also, you know, especially in the eighties, we weren't so far removed from the, you know, historic alliances of the, of the civil rights movement, uh, where, where, where Jews and, and, and African-Americans were, you know, really, uh, linked, uh, linked up to, you know, to try to promote the cause of freedom for, for everybody. Um, so I think there's that, um, I think there's, you know, there's some rhythmic similarities that, um, between, you know, some reggae music and, and some traditional Jewish music, which probably gives it a little added oomph. Um, I think some of the, you know, Jewish symbolism that a lot of, um, that, that a lot of uh, Rasta uh, adopted uh, certainly made all that easier. I mean, you know, when you see your favorite artist, when you see your favorite artist wearing a star of David, right. Exactly. And you're Jewish. It's like, uh, it's, it's, you know, that um, that was a big part of it for me. I think uh, I was going to say also, you know, the outsider, uh, you know, um, Jews as, as outsiders. I, I just was like, why is this um, reggae artist uh, have a star of David either on their album cover or, like you said, why are they wearing a big star of David? So I think that was an attraction to me at a time when I sort of felt like I didn't really fit in. I didn't go to a school that had a lot of Jews, so yeah. it was it was certainly um, uh, attractive to me. Yeah. And then, you know, I think, um, you know, the music, you know, there's so many stars of the music. And I just think in the music business in general, right. From the producers, like we talked about my grandfather, uh, early on to, you know, stars like, you know, you name them, you know, there's a lot of Jewish, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of Jews in, in the music business at that point too. So I just think we were, you know, we were all gravitated towards that too. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, I want to talk to you just a little bit about your new job at Rolling Stone. Yeah. Um, you were quoted as saying Rolling Stone changed my life. It's yeah. music journalism helped push me to play in bands. So I know we've talked a little bit about the bands you've played in, but how, how did Rolling Stone change your life? Cause I, it changed my life too, but I want to hear, hear your story. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, like, look, looking back on, on what Rolling Stone would do in the, in the, you know, eighties, nineties, early aughts, it was like, you know, they turn rock stars into superheroes, man, you know, and you just like, you know, through the, through the incredible photojournalism and, and, and through the storytelling, you know, there's just nobody you, you know, just seemed like nothing cooler on the planet. And, you know, you'd look at like those random notes pages and you'd be like, oh my God, you know, I want to be at that party or, you know, like, holy shit, these guys are so cool. They're so deep. 
Um, so I don't know. It just, and, it, and, and, you know, I was always so happy when, you know, if Fishbone got like, you know, the, the, the meekest of mentions in Rolling Stone, I was so happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally um, agree with that. That was a big deal back then. If one of your, you know, bands that were on the periphery suddenly got a mention in there, it was, it was really important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there, I think there was some of that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited that you're, you're at the helm now because, um, I loved Rolling Stone and I still do. I had a subscription for many, many years. Um, it, it was must reading for me in, in, yeah. in college and out of college. And then spin magazine came out and was sort of like, you know, a, a bit of an upstart competitor, but I always sort of, I read them both. Yeah, of course. Um, you had to read them both. Um, but I guess my question for you, not to put you on the hot spot here, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before, um, but how do you make a magazine that was initially focused on baby boomers and Gen X relevant for, you know, I have a, I have a nearly 15-year-old, um, you know, Gen Z kid. Yeah. Um, and I think you have some kids too. How do, we, how do you make Rolling Stone relevant? Or do you sort of stick, I know you've, you've got some ideas, but do you stick to some of what made it what it was in the past? You know, a mix of music, journalism as well as politics and, and sort of um, culture? Okay. That's a bunch of questions at once. Sorry. So let me, let, let me try. No, 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 no problem. But let me, let me pick them apart for you. So the answer of like, is there going to be a mix of pop culture and hard hitting investigations and like totally light, fun, frivolous and politics? Like, is there going to be that mix? Fuck yeah, definitely. Um, and and that's going to continue. And if anything, we're, we're tripling down on, on, you know, deeply reported, you know, hard hitting investigations. And, you know, we're closing the, the, um, the April issue, uh, as we talk and, and, you know, we've got, um, like our, we've got a couple of really good stories from Ukraine that we've sort of crashed into this issue. Um, we've got some hard hitting political pieces and we've got a, um, you know, a, a profile of a, of a, you know, major, major Gen Z star. Um, so yeah, no, that formula is going to happen. What there's not going to be a lot of, uh, is like, you know, if you want to see Rolling Stone, write Uh, it's 493rd, um, uh, um, epic tone poem in praise of Bruce Springsteen. Um, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Thank God. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, you know, my predecessor had, uh, you know, all the, uh, the photographs on, on the wall of, of, um, uh, of the wall of his office. He had, uh, he had Johnny Cash and, and, and Bob Dylan and, you know, I've got Steel Pulse and Eric B and Ruckin and it's just, it's a different, you know, I've just got a different vibe. Um, and, um, and, and a different sensibility. And, and so, you know, I love all that classic rock, uh, you know, it definitely informed all our music, but, um, you know, I'm not here, you know, I'm not here to continue the baby boomers myth banking. If, if anything, I th- I'm here to tear down a couple of their myths and, and we've seen that already. Uh, you know, we did a bit major expose on, uh, on Eric Clapton and his yes. racist bullshit. Yes. And, you know, obviously as a reggae fan, um, you know, know well about how he, uh, butchered, I shot the sheriff, 
admitted he butchered it and then put out a whole album, uh, you know, singing in a fake Jamaican accent, um, which was not great, especially because uh, he was not long off of, uh, you know, using every racial, racial epithet in the book. Yeah. Um, and a fun fact, I didn't set this up, but, uh, uh, as we were doing that expose, we, we were looking for, um, people who were in the audience during a famously, uh, racist, uh, rant that, that Clapton did. And one of the people in the audience was, uh, Dave Wakeling from the English beat. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty fun. Um, and I just say, you know, look, we're going to keep it you know, we're going to keep it fresh for, for a young audience. Um, and, and that's going to mean, you know, highlighting genres that maybe didn't always get their due, uh, in Rolling Stone. Um, uh, I think, um, you will, if you are, you will not have to be that close of a reader of the magazine to notice, uh, um, some things that will, uh, entertain listeners to this podcast and, <laughs> and, and then, uh, you, and then, um, and, uh, and, and then the other part is that we just have to, you know, have to make sure that every day we're like delivering, you know, really, you know, we've got to be in the daily news game too. And, and we've got to make sure that we're, you know, delivering, you know, really, high quality, fun material all the time. And that, you know, uh, for some magazine outfits, um, you know, digital is kind of, is, is kind of an afterthought. And that's not really the case for me at all. You know, that's how I came up. Yeah. I I want to compliment you on that because, um, I became a digital subscriber because you guys were posting so many interesting articles and I would go and try to read it and I'd be like, fuck, Yes. I had to pay to read this. And I was That's like, right, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to pay to read it because yeah. I want to, this is a great, this looks like a great piece. So congratulations on converting me. And I'm sure hope, I hope a lot more other people based yeah. on, on the, on the content that you're putting out there. Thank you. And then, you know, we've got some great podcasts too that, that you can check out. Um, there's one uh, called don't let this flop about, you know, kind of like trends and digital culture and, you know, what's hot on TikTok and stuff like that right now. That's really fun. That's great. Yeah, that I think folks will like. And then, you know, uh, ooh, we've got a, a live TV show every day on on Twitch, the streaming platform. Uh, uh, that is definitely not your your father's uh, Rolling Stone. And, and, you know, our Instagram game and stuff like that is, is all really strong. Um, you know, for listeners of uh, of this podcast, we, we dove pretty deep the other day into – whether uh, Dua Lipa really did uh, rip off uh, Article Sound System uh, in Levitating. Uh, uh, take a listen here for yourself, you know. So I think, yeah, I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff to, um, you know, to keep it new and keep it and, and keep it hot. And then, and then, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to turn, you know, Rolling Stone into, uh, into a rolling dread or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hope to get reggae, uh, in there, um, and to get Scott in there as much as I can. And, and I just say, you know, I, you know, if you're in a band and you, and you're, you know, I just say that, you know, make your best music, 
you know, make your absolute best music and, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a friendly ear and a, and a champion, um, at the biggest music publication in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's music to my ears and will be music to the ears of many listeners. And, and I, on behalf of a lot of those people know, I want to tip my hat for, and thank you for having the slackers on your Twitch channel. I think that was right before the new year And that, that yeah, was no a, a real um, signal to many of us who have loved yeah. this music for a long time that, that I think, you know, we, we had a champion, you know, you were a champion for this too. So yeah. Yeah. It's no problem. I mean, look, you know, uh, agent J is, you know, somebody I shared the back of a van with for longer than I can remember. You know, Vic is, is, has been one of my favorite guys for, for, you know, for years. And, and, you know, like we were talking about before we started taping, you know, the, um, the, the longevity of, of their high quality is just incredible. It, it, it is up there with, the some of the greatest runs in American music of any any genre and um and uh I was psyched to do it uh this the the staff at Rolling Stone was super psyched to do it uh uh you know there's actually a bunch of low-key sconders uh at the uh, <laughs> uh at the Rolling Stone staff and uh and uh, it was um uh, it was great to have them and, and, you know, uh, hopefully as COVID passes, we'll be able to have other, um, Scott and reggae bands, uh, you know, doing that, or, you know, we've got shows we're putting on ourselves and stuff like that. So th- there's going to be all kinds of opportunities. That's great. Um, one last question for you and then I'm going to let you go. Um, yeah. don't send me your demo though. <laughs> I do not want to hear your demo. Do, you heard that here. Do not send Noah your demos. Just make yeah. your best music. Take his advice. Yeah. Make your best music and they'll find you if you're doing that. Yeah. Um, what advice would the Noah of, let's say, 1992 share with the Noah of 2022 at this point? Is there anything you've learned Ooh. over the last... I know that's a tough last question, um, but I'm curious because you have had this sort of fascinating... Uh, life where you've been a full-time musician and then a full-time journalist. And now you, in my mind, sit, uh, you know, on a seat that's a combination of the two, but anything, you know, even if it's just one thing uh, that you would. So this is my advice from my older self to my younger self um, or the other way around. That's a good question. I had it from your younger self to your, to your current self, but you know what? We can switch it up. What would you, what would well, do you tell how, how about I, yeah. So let's see. Um, you know, I was, okay, when I thought it was from my younger self to my, from my older self to my younger self, I was thinking about a time, I was mentioning that, that Europe tour uh, before, and I remember I was uptight about some bullshit, I forget what, uh, on that tour, and, uh, and, and Jeff said something to me like, you're either the most chill, uptight person I know, or the most uptight, chill person I know. <laughs> Very Django thing to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, and so the advice I would have given my my older self to my younger self is to you know don't grip the throttle so tightly, man. You know, like make sure you're enjoying these moments, these incredible moments. Um, and I would kind of ironically give the same advice from my younger self to my older self now, um, 
you know, I remember, uh, my college band, this probably was like, I don't know, 91 or something like that. And we were playing at the old 930 club. And, um, in DC, which was like DC's best venue by a mile. And, um, there's a guy that, uh, a college buddy that was like, you know, jumping on, was, was sort of like backstage with us as we were about to go on and sort of like, man, you got to drink this in. This will probably be the last time, you know, you ever, uh, you know, do something like this. And I was thinking to him, <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, dude, you have got it all wrong. This is the first of a whole lot of times, <laughs> but I, but in stride, you know, I think that same message of like enjoying the, these incredible opportunities, um, you know, that's the advice I got to follow, whether, you know, no matter who, who it came from. And, you know, these jobs are hard. They're really challenging. You know, any media job is hard, um, uh, in today's environment. Um, any of these, you know, somehow I trick people into making me a boss and any of these boss jobs are hard in, in any of these cases, but, you know, just enjoying, and, and, and really taking the time to be like, you know, fucking pinch me. I'm the editor of Rolling Stone is, is like, I, I really, I'm trying to do it every day. I really am. Well, I'm rooting for you. Yeah. Hey, you know what I say? Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Perfect. Um, all right. Noah, I want to thank you. Really. I know you're a really busy man. There's a lot going on in the world right now that your magazine is covering. And I'm grateful that you took some time to speak to me and, and all the listeners who are big ska and reggae fans. And, and I'm, I'm excited for them to, if they don't know that you had a ska and reggae background, then I'm excited for them to hear some of these stories. So I really appreciate your time today. Cool. Thanks, man. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Ska Boom interviews on the Pantheon Podcast Network. My book is available. Ska Boom is available from DeWolf Publishing. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care.